Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureViz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 225, and today's guests are Daniel Theobald, founder and chief innovation officer at Vecna Robotics, and Trevor Zimmerman, co-founder and managing partner of Blackhorn Ventures. Well, this is a first. It's the first time I've had the opportunity to interview both a founder and an investor in the same episode. I wasn't sure how it would go, but after conducting the interview, I think this might be an interesting format to consider moving forward. We obviously discuss all the details about Vecna Robotics, the autonomous mobile robot and workflow orchestration company, but it was really interesting to learn the story behind the investment. It was like a live version of those common why we invested blog posts that the VCs often write to detail their thought process behind their investment. As you'll hear, the background story of each person and how they got to where they are today really sets the stage for why I love doing this podcast. It would be hard to find other individuals who have more expertise in their respected fields and why this is a perfect match to hopefully build a massive company. In this episode of our podcast, we also cover lots of other great topics, like what the future holds for mobile robots and autonomous vehicles, the founding story of Vecna and why they spun out Vecna Robotics, use cases, and why the market is ready for the solutions provided by Vecna Robotics, plus the company's growth plans ahead, the details on Blackhorn Ventures and what Trevor is targeting for investments, common pitch mistakes entrepreneurs make while raising funding for robotics companies, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a VentureFizz subscription. It's our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A VentureFizz subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and more. Send an email to info at VentureFizz.com for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Daniel and Trevor. Daniel and Trevor, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Keith. Great to be here. I am excited to do this podcast because this is a first for me. This is a first time that I've had the opportunity to interview a founder and an investor. You know, sometimes I have founders and sometimes it's co-founders speaking about a company. Other times I talk to investors about all the things that they're looking at in terms of their investment opportunities, but never the combined entity of a founder with an investor on the same podcast. So thank you both for taking the time. And we're going to be talking about this topic that I just absolutely love, and that's robotics. Um, so Daniel's the founder of Vecna Robotics, and Trevor is uh, one of the investors with Blackhorn Ventures. So since I have two esteemed experts into this world, I want to start big. I want to talk about the future, right? Mobile, robotic, mobile robots and autonomous vehicles. I wonder, because you're starting to see more and more, and there's more speaking about it. There's tests out there. And I think um, Motional did a, uh, they have autonomous cars in Vegas right now. So if you had to fast forward maybe five or 10 years, whatever you think the appropriate time is, what are we going to be expecting to see like around robots, autonomous vehicles, trucks, autonomous planes? Like what, what are your thoughts there? I guess we'll start with, uh, with Daniel. Yeah, well, so it is an exciting time for robotics and automation in general. Uh, you know, I think the short answer to your question is we're going to see a lot more of them, but it's it's going to continue to be fairly specific use cases. You know, the idea that they're just going to be robots on all the roads everywhere all the time is probably not going to happen. 
but when when we take the technology and we apply it to a specific um, need, for instance, robots in warehouses or trucking, you know, good example. Um, there there are problems there that um, have a big enough payback that they can be solved in a reasonable amount of time. Um, you know, will we be at the point where everybody owns uh, an autonomous vehicle? No, that's probably not going to happen within a decade or so. But um, the, the technology is going to have a very, very big impact. And, and, um, and I think that's partly because we tend to think linearly and we oftentimes forget the network effects of everything. And this technology is just improving so quickly. It's, it's going to change the way we do a number of things, you know, just like the Internet basically changed everything. Uh, you know, no one would have predicted how much it changed everything. Automation, you know, really has that same potential. Yeah. What, what do you think, Trevor? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think this idea that I'm going to fall asleep in my Tesla and wake up and tell you right, having driven through a snowstorm, it's a long way off, right? Um, but, you know, and I think our, as a firm, we've been investing very actively in the space, companies like Vecna, right? And X-Wing and Locomation. And I think across them, it's kind of Daniel got at this point. It's they have a viable business model today, right? They're solving a significant pain point for their customers today. And in each of these cases, it also allows them to collect the data and refine their operations, their algorithms, and their offerings so that they can advance from level three to level four to level five autonomous, right? But they're doing it with a viable business model. It's not this, we're gonna burn a bunch of cash to try to get to this level five future um, and we don't make money in between here and there, right? That's kind of how we've approached it. Yeah, and, and I, I think that also just brings out the one other really critical point here is that um, it's really not about replacing people. You know, people, people tend to just immediately go to, oh, we're gonna have autonomy to get rid of all the people. And that is a, it, I don't wanna say a fool's errand, but it's somewhat of a fool's errand, right? You're, you're, you're really wanting to get the best result and the best result almost always comes when you have that optimal pairing of the humans and the technology. And when you try and get rid of one with the other, um, you're, you're not going to get, you're not gonna get the results you want. Yeah, I, and I agree with that like the, the jobs piece, like it's creating jobs for the, the human brain to do things that are more enjoyable or more creative and, you know, versus the mundane task of something repetitious that a robot may, may be programmed to do. Yeah. But you know, there's probably going to be a driver in that truck or at least in that convoy for the foreseeable future, that driver is going to be able to do more than they've been able to do in the past because of the automation. Um, but the driver's not going away anytime soon. Yeah, and we, we have a portfolio company that has this mantra of workers first, right? And it just pervades everything they do as an organization. And I think it really pervades all of the, the companies or is representative of an ethos at all of the companies that we've invested in the space, right? It's how do we free that worker up to kind of have their best day of work and automate away the tasks that are dangerous or uh, not very enjoyable, et cetera. Yeah. Same thing with AI. I mean, that's a good example of AI is being used in industrial and, you know, inspecting things that a human probably wouldn't, the eye wouldn't be able to see, but the AI is, you know, making the world a better place for some particular industry. So uh, a lot going into it. It's really exciting times. Well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, Trevor, talk, talk about your background. So where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. So uh, I spent about half my childhood in Kansas. I was born there. The other half in northern New Jersey. Um, that's a really awesome transition to go through in like middle school. I'd really recommend that for everybody. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I think one of the things that was really fantastic about my childhood, there were a number of things, but one that was really great looking back on it, my dad's a mechanical engineer and serial entrepreneur. And very specifically, and so this nexus between kind of engineering and entrepreneurship was very present. And then more specifically, I was there for that kind of messy middle, right? I was home for that, like the building phase, which I think sort of prepared me well for kind of what I've gone on to do, right? It wasn't either glamorous end of the entrepreneurial journey. It was the thick of it. And I was present to kind of watch that. And then I've carried that, um, a lot of that, those lessons through, through into my career. How about you, Daniel? Well, I, I, I want to underscore Trevor's point. I mean, we're on the heels of Father's Day here. And, you know, I would say that probably the biggest advantage I had in life was that uh, I was just telling someone the other day, um, my my mom asked me to babysit my father pretty regularly. And by babysit, I mean, my father was very adventurous. And, you know, he'd always be going out and doing stuff. And um, I had a number of siblings, but none of them were particularly interested in, in you know, babysitting dads. So uh, I did it and it was the best possible thing. I mean, I learned plumbing, electrical, mechanical work, um, you know, learned to help people um, when adventuring, you know, motorcycles, hiking, four wheel driving, all this stuff. And um, uh, probably got far more out of that than my education, uh, ultimately. But, you know, I was very fortunate in that I grew up in um, Silicon Valley in San Jose, be actually before it was known as Silicon Valley. And um, just had tremendous access to technology that is to yet today very uncommon. I mean, I attended an elementary school that had probably one of the world's first computer labs in an elementary school. Wow. Um, and I, you know, I had access to technology all the way through, you know, I took electronics and programming classes, uh, middle school, high school. Um, and was very fortunate that I, I was chosen as the uh, top computer science student in California and got to go to Lawrence Livermore National Lab and work on the world's fastest computer at that time. Um, so I, I just had access to, to things that were I, I took for granted at the time. I didn't know that the rest of the world wasn't also having this, this amazing experience with me. Um, and, you know, so that drove a lot of... of um, uh, my career, but then also I think made it very clear to me that we have a responsibility to try and make these type of opportunities available to a broader um, cross-section of uh, people on this planet. What was your first home computer? Uh, Commodore, uh, no, yeah, Commodore VIC-20. VIC-20, oh yeah. Uh, VIC-20, then I had a six Commodore 64, then I built an Apple II Plus out of um, out of parts that I obtained from uh, swap meets in the area. Uh, then I had a um, Macintosh SE, um, and uh, I actually um, marbleized that. So it was this really, you know how the old Macs were like this cube? Yeah. I, I turned it into, it looked like a marble cube with a screen in front of it. And that was a fun computer because it was the only computer I ever bought and then sold for a profit. Um, uh, multiple years later. Um, yeah. So computers are cool. Well, 
Well, so Trevor, you went on, you studied chemistry for your undergrad, right? Yeah, that's what my degree is in for undergrad, but I was actually really fortunate in that the, I went to a school in Western New York called Alfred University, and it's both Alfred University, which is a small liberal arts college, and then it's, the reason I went there is the uh, New York State College of Ceramics, kind of the best in all for ceramic engineering glass science, and so sort of went there with that in mind, but then got in with some deans and faculty members that had huge impact on my life. Like the nerdiest, my nerdiest claim to fame is that my organic chemistry professor was a groomsman at my wedding, but I got in there and the reality was I came up with this T model and I said, I want to go a mile wide and inch deep in kind of engineering and science and then deep in entrepreneurship and investing, right? And specifically under this umbrella of sort of energy and environmental stewardship and human health, right? How do I play at that nexus to help affect meaningful change in the world? And so I made up my own curriculum through those, you know, through supportive deans and faculty members. And so I did ceramics, glass science, materials, mechanical, electrical, biomedical, chemistry, you know, really broad in the engineering and sciences. And then basically all the classes for a degree in business as well, kind of along the lines of that T model. I'm glad we're doing this. I'm learning all kinds of things about you. I didn't <laughs> right. know Trevor. We'll have to talk about ceramics later I on. I love ceramics. <laughs> So Daniel, so you went on to study at MIT. So what, what did you, like you were in a very, like you were in the vision and touch guided manipulation lab. So what does that mean? Yeah, that was a uh, lab in the uh, artificial intelligence lab later became known as the computer science and artificial intelligence lab. CSAIL. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, prior to that, it was just the AI lab. Yeah. And we were really focused on this idea of, um, of uh, using vision and and haptics touch to make it um, easier to do tasks and and the context for this is that robotics up until that point uh, and actually significantly after that really was just focused on what I would call record and playback right in, in all of the warehouses and factories well really just mostly factories you have these big robot arms and you would um, you know, basically pre-program a set path that that arm would follow. Um, in many ways, does not really even qualify as what we, um, you know, tend to think about as robotics today. Um, it was really just a machine that did the same thing over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea of using vision, you know, cameras to, to guide a robot's actions was this, you know, nobody, nobody had really done that yet. And, um, and then, you know, right along with that, the idea was that um, robots are going to interact with the physical world. Humans use touch in many ways more than we use vision um, when, you're, when you're actually interacting with things. So it's a very important and, and, and still probably under-researched area for robotics. I got to work on a lot of really interesting projects. Um, I, I worked on uh, some of the Mars rovers um, uh, through that lab and, and a number of things like that. So some really fun stuff. Yeah, that's super fun. <laughs> now, so Trevor, like you, you went on more of a research as well, right? Like post-grad type of research. Yeah. And that was, that was not, not necessarily intentional. I mean, so I really was on this kind of entrepreneurial investing pathway and I was really, I was on my way to business school and the Naval Research Lab in DC had gotten my resume from a professor and said, hey, why don't you come down and work on high performance batteries for the military? So I did that. 
and I had a really good time. And long story short, I was kind of on my way to do a PhD under a gentleman who was just world renowned for that. Met the woman who is now my wife. A week before school started, I said, hey, I called Clemson and said, hey, can I come down there and do a PhD instead? Threw everything in my Jeep, moved to, moved to Clemson. Um, and But really that T model persisted, right? And this interest in entrepreneurship and investing. And so I, to further broaden my technical background, I did all the courses for a PhD in material science engineering with a biomedical focus and then switched to an environmental engineering with a nuclear focus. And so I did plutonium work in graduate school. Um, it was a fantastic experience, wonderful advisors. And again, trying to go to a startup and Oak Ridge National Lab had a project that was a little sideways, um, uranium and technetium from the Manhattan Project migrating offsite in groundwater. And there, was, there were not that many people in the last 40 years who had done radiochemistry or nuclear work, right? So I just, I was like kind of their only option, which is going to be a recurring theme throughout my career. So they didn't have a better choice. <laughs> <laughs> they have a better choice, but you know, well, yeah, one of the few people that have that level of expertise from that uh, subject matter, pretty amazing. <laughs> uh, so, all right, so Daniel, so so like, talk about kind of like like your entry into entrepreneurship. Like, how did that all come together? Because uh, you know, it seems like you know, entry points for people. Some people go in the industry, some people, re, you know, do research, then they go into entrepreneurship and take some IP or so. So how, how did you end up on the entrepreneurial path? Yeah. Funny, funny story. Um, not necessarily sure it's the story your listeners will want to hear, but, um, you know, I would say that, um, uh, you know, as uh, during MIT and as I graduated from MIT, I worked for a number of different different companies, a number of different startups. And um, I just grew increasingly dissatisfied with, um, you know, I, I guess the lack of um, attention to anything other than, um, you know, just trying to figure out how to extract as much money from the economy as quickly as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, it just, it just kind of left me with a feeling that, um, you know, anyone can make money. Making money is not hard. Um, you know, if you're if you're persistent enough, you can make a lot of money. But what's a perhaps more challenging and perhaps slightly more noble goal is to, you know, make money, but have it be a positive impact on the world at the same time. Right. And so, um, you know, after a while, a number of these experiences, I just I, I kind of felt like I couldn't find a company that I could really buy into that I could really get excited about. And so decided that, uh, you know, if I was having that experience. There were probably a number of other people out there that were having that same experience, you know, so I felt uh, a, a desire to try and fill that gap and, and, and start something. Um, so in some sense, I'm a little bit of a, um, uh, you know, hesitant entrepreneur maybe is, is the right way to say it. Um, uh, I would have much rather, I think, found that great company and worked for that great company. Um, but, uh, you know, I couldn't find it. So, um, so we made one and, uh, now it exists and, uh, it's a lot of fun. And this was just for context. It was 98, right? Like around that time. Yep. Frame? Yeah. Okay. That's great context. I mean, it really explains, it goes a long way to explaining the incredible culture that Vecna has, right? I think we just... Vecna really stands out for me as just having an incredible kind of company culture. It's somewhere people want to work. Um, and so that, that history, that context makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's all about just uh, um, realizing that the reason we do things is for people. And in business, we shouldn't forget that. We're, we're doing things for people and, um, uh, you know, employees, people on your team, they're probably some of the most important people involved. So, um, you know, we oftentimes, I, I hate the word human resources um, because resources resources are like, you know, water and land and coal and oil and, you know, things that you use up. And we shouldn't think of humans and, and workers as something that we use up, right? They're the point. They're why we do all of this stuff in the first place. And so I just think, you know, there, there hasn't been as much balance in that historically. And I think that's all changing now, which is really exciting. So, so Trevor, you mentioned you you're, you always had the plan of becoming an investor. So how did how did you get on that track from you know your research, your PhD, to finally you know becoming an investor? Yeah. So to be clear, I ended up leaving with a master's degree in engineering, going to Oak Ridge. Um, Got it. And um, so then Fukushima happened, and you know I think my background, that combination of glass science and nuclear. Uh, was somewhat unique, right? Because I think, uh, you know, Curion, venture-backed company, um, the play there was really, you had all this radioactive water filling up the basements of those reactor buildings. And to keep that from getting into the ocean, we developed a treatment train to kind of remove the radionuclides and concentrate them on inorganic ion exchange media. And there was a lot. When I left, we calculated it was sort of the area of Hartsfield Jackson International Airport was like a local reference point was full of Curion's 42 cubic foot stainless steel vessels with seven inch stainless steel shields, super radioactive, right? So what do you do with that waste? Um, turning it into glass gives you an 80% volume reduction in a stable waste form for millions of years. So it was kind of the combo of those two somewhat unique backgrounds. Um, so that was a great success. I mean, Curion was a, was a real, real success story. Um, so I wanted to go back and do it again. And so I looked at, uh, I had an entrepreneur in residence role look at commercializing technologies out of national labs and universities initially. Um, and that kind of led to angel investing, which then led to, um, I think my partners and I did a little over 70 direct investments as individuals. And then we kind of institutionalized that, if you will, um, through Blackhorn, which is uh, investors wanting access to our domain expertise, our track record. We got really deep ties to the ecosystems around Stanford and Berkeley, MIT, just wanted access to all of that. So that's kind of how it was sort of the venture back startup that led to investing that led to more investing. Got it. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about Vecna. So Vecna, like, so, you know, like how did you get started? Right. Cause you boots, this was bootstrapped if I'm correct. So, so what did, how did you get started? Yeah. So, you know, when, when we, when we launched things, it was pretty clear to me that the world was not yet ready to have this type of modern mobile robotics scale. Um, so we decided to um, we decided to um, bootstrap. Right, I'd seen a number of my entrepreneur friends that I'd say probably went out to the VC world too early, raised outside money too early, um, and. Uh, hope I don't offend anyone, but I, I tend to tell people that, you know, taking BC is like pressing the self-destruct button on your spaceship. You've got one hour to find the alien, kill the alien, and disable the self-destruct button, 
or you know you're you're probably gonna um, get blown to pieces. Um, that's a little bit dramatic, but uh, you know the point is that timing is important and timing is everything. And so making sure that you are ready to produce the kind of results that investors will expect is really important. So I didn't want to bring in any outside money until I felt like I could be confident that I could guarantee, air quoting, that I could guarantee that um, I was going to be able to produce the kind of returns for investors that I would want to see personally. So what we actually did was we started a consulting company to start with, you know, because barrier to entry um, is very low. We needed some smart people. We had a bunch of people from MIT and we needed some computers and we were able to start making money. And so we just bootstrapped that way. And then we just kept reinvesting that money into this long-term vision of making robots that were going to really revolutionize uh, the way things were done, you know, because we were sort of starting with a fresh sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the focus there always was, um, how do you build this technology in the right way for the long term and, and give it that level of flexibility, give it that level of planning and, and optimization, orchestration is a word you'll hear us talk about. Um, that just simply doesn't exist today. So we really took a long view and then made sure that um, we were solving all of the hard problems over time that would allow us when the time was right. And that meant when the market was ready, when the technology was ready, when the labor markets were appropriate, when the investing community was ready, when all of those things were ready, our goal was to be you know, in the pole position um, for this revolution uh, that, that's happening. And so, um, you know, that that was kind of our approach. It took a lot of discipline, um, you know, people numerous times, you know, and it's funny because at the time when I started this, I would have thought, you know, the robotics thing would happen, you know, um, you know, in a couple of years. Um, and then it was, well, maybe it'll happen in five years. And then, you know, it's like, well, maybe it'll happen in 10 years. But we, we built the company in such a way that we um, could continue to uh, invest in this technology so that when the time was right, um, we had a massive uh, um, you know, advantage uh, over everyone else in the market. Um, and and uh, you know, that strategy is uh, working out very well for us. Because um, you know, where a number of other competitors are working really hard to try and sort of redo their technology and, and sort of catch up, you know, our technology is really just starting to hit its stride and uh, um, has um, uh, massive advantages uh, as you as you roll the clock forward that that uh, other technologies simply don't have. And so, were you were using the you know the consulting revenue to fund the research for what you're doing now? Like the consulting business, was it still in the same general world of what you're doing now, or was it a little bit of like you know because focus can sometimes be a hard thing for focus is a hard thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we actually were doing mostly healthcare software at the time. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and that was mostly due to just the opportunities that happened to, you know, be, be in front of us at the moment. But it, it, it certainly was a distraction in some sense. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it paid the bills. We were able to do very well in, in the healthcare um, IT side of things. We, you know, built um, patient medical records, had uh, uh, online check-in kiosks and, and web uh, and mobile mobile apps for the healthcare industry 
you know, sort of way ahead of its time, um, uh, won some big government contracts. But then we had a robotics division, um, sort of an R&D or advanced development division that was, um, you know, sort of investing long term. You know, basically all of my money was going into that. Um, and in addition to that, we were able to um, win. We, we got very good at winning government grants for the robotics research. But again, that was an area where we had to have a tremendous amount of discipline because it's very easy to win a grant that just distracts you off of your, your product roadmap. So we, we made sure that every grant we, we went after and every grant we won fit very nicely, you know, and by nicely, I mean, you know, 75 to 80% into our long-term roadmap. Um, and again, that's, that's hard to do. You know, I, I could rattle off a number of companies that, you know, never have quite figured out how to balance their, you know, their sort of product work with their R&D work. Um, and uh, there's some real magic when you can get that balance right. Well, I do want to go deep into, you know, Vecna Robotics. But before we get into that, uh, Trevor, so talk about Blackhorn and what you got, you know, the, the firm, like size of the fund, the types of investing that you do. Yeah. Um... So, you know, our focus as a firm is really on sort of the deployment phase of the information communications technology revolution to industrial sectors, right? So for better or for a lot worse, our personal lives have been dramatically transformed by these technologies, right? And now they're sort of, you know, pervading industrial sectors. We do a lot in transportation logistics. We do a lot in construction, construction tech, manufacturing tech, energy, right? So the digitization of some of these sectors specifically to improve productivity and resiliency, right? How do we make them more efficient and more resilient? So that's what we're kind of, that's what we are focused on as a firm across our funds. Um, we've, you know, always focused on having, we pretty much everybody on the team has kind of more of that entrepreneurial operator type background and then through success as operators got into investing. Um, so we really started more with seed stage investing, right? And there's a number of reasons for that. One is I think that's kind of where we came from, where we're most comfortable. It's come in early, roll up our sleeves and try to provide value beyond financial capital um, without being overbearing or anything like that. Um, and then have the wherewithal as a firm to really support our winners all the way through to exit. And so we've got a series of funds and it's really set up for that, right? It's come in early. Ideally, we pretty much always enter a company. We've got, as Blackhorn, I think we're right around 70 portfolio companies, um, in addition to the 70 we had done previously. And most of those relationships were sort of initiated at Cedar Series A. Um, there's a bit of semantics there, but kind of early. And then we play all the way through. Um, that's, that's a bit of, of where we're at at Blackhorn. Got it. Okay. And then and the, you're, you're based out of uh, Colorado. Yeah. So I live in Boulder. Uh, we have an office in Denver, office in Palo Alto. Um, and we are now back to kind of pre COVID levels of travel. We're constantly all over the place. Got it. Okay. So you're back on the road. Yeah. Cause you do have, I noticed your portfolio, your investments are scattered around. Like you have some in Boston you have some on the west coast yeah they tend to be more coastal we do a fair amount in the uk some in canada and mexico mostly the coasts um in, in the u.s uh two of my partners have been teaching entrepreneurship in the graduate schools of engineering at stanford and berkeley for decades right so we do a lot there um i think just given our investment thesis we also have an operating partner david mendel 
Um, he's a prof aero astro professor at MIT and serial entrepreneur. Um, so pretty good connectivity into that ecosystem as well. And given our investment thesis, uh, I think MIT is a really fertile ground um, for us, companies like Vecna. So we do a lot there as well. Got it. Okay. All right. So Daniel, at what point do you decide, okay, we have what we want here and we're going to raise capital and we're going to like, do you start getting customers? Do you build the prototype? Like what, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Like what, like, like how does that process work? Yeah. We, um, started to see that, you know, these prerequisites we had laid out were being met, um, right about 2017. We felt like there was a, a real pull from uh, customers. You know, they were they were starting to understand that they needed these type of solutions. Whereas previously, you'd go out and you you know try and force feed it to them. Um, uh, you know, so there were just a whole bunch of factors that made it clear that the market uh, timing um, was was appropriate. And um, prior to that, we had been, you know, building lots of prototypes and even deploying robots in a, in a very limited way um, to make sure that, uh, again, when the time was right, we were going to be ready to scale. Um, uh, again, one of those things that took a lot of discipline is we would, you know, um, we would tell customers, hey, this is the prototype, you know, we're not going to scale this up, we're not going to support this long term. And inevitably, at the end of the trial, they're like, oh, we want to keep the robot. Can't you, you know, can't you let us keep this robot? And we, uh, and that was actually mostly in the healthcare space. We, we did a lot of that um, because we decided that if we could have a robot that could navigate effectively in a hospital, then it's sort of a superset of a lot of the problems that you see elsewhere. Um, but yeah, so we, um, we, uh, decided that, uh, you know, the time was right. And so we um, understood that focus was really important for a venture-backed company. So we actually broke Vecna Technologies up and spun it out into four different companies um, that could focus in these different areas. And Vecna Robotics is using all of that robotics IP. And, you know, we have over um, 100 patents and um, and all of the work we've done and, and just the absolutely incredible engineering team that exists here, many of whom have been working with this team for over a decade as well at that point, and uh, I, um, spun it out and then went out there to uh, uh, start to raise money. And the reason for that is, um, you know, you can only bootstrap so far when, when you, when you, uh, you know, want to start the exponential scaling um, uh, thing. Uh, you know, the the spending sort of by its very nature has to be a little bit ahead of the of the revenue. And so um, that was when we decided that, uh, you know, we needed to uh, um, sort of ramp up and and bring in some outside money, scale up the team and, uh, you know, and really uh, make a run of it. So, so Trevor, how, how did Vecna Robotics get on your radar? Like, was it something that you had been following for a while? Like, did you know Daniel from the industry? Like, how did how did the two of you meet? Yeah, so I think it was Daniel. Was it Matt Rhodescroft that connected us? I think it was. That's probably. I think true. it was. So sort of a preferred co-investor, a great um, Cambridge-based seed um, investor introduced us, and we were both. I remember we were both in Palo Alto, and so we just it happened to work out for a coffee there. We met at the Blue Bottle on University Avenue, and I think that the the takeaway I remember that conversation pretty vividly. What was that? Two and a half, two and a half years ago, probably, maybe a little longer. Um, 
And, and one of the major themes, which has been a theme of this conversation so far, was just timeliness, right? And I think that's critically important and over often overlooked. But as I talked to Daniel and he kind of talked through that story that he just kind of walked us through, right? It's like, I, I think the way you put it were, at that time was, I always knew that the largest opportunity for AI and robotics in my lifetime was going to be in logistics, right? But the timing wasn't right. And so I, I was very successful. I mean, he's had incredible success, right? Delivering timely solutions, whether it's to the military or in a healthcare context, whatever. And when I saw all these pieces coming together and the opportunity in, um, in logistics sort of becoming timely, we spun out Vector Robotics to go after that. And so I think one of the key things that got me really excited about it, uh, aside from the fact that he's like one of the best roboticists in the world, graduated number one in the College of Engineering at MIT and all these things, um, was just that- Flushing. Yeah, yeah. Which was just that focus <laughs> on, on timeliness, right? It's like a really credible perspective, a really credible um, story around why is now the time to go after this huge opportunity? So that's, you know, how we met and what I was most excited about. So as an investor, what's that like, right? Because like you're you're always looking for the next great opportunity to invest in. And I remember, so my background is a headhunter and you'd find these, you know, candidates that walked on water. They were, you know, you knew this was the right person for this job at this point in time. What you do is very different, but it's like you get introduced and you meet this founder who's been building this company very strategically with a mindset of right time, right industry. And like you said, the team is world class. So you must just be like, okay, like how do we write a like, term sheet up now? Like, like <laughs> and Trevor played it very cool, you know, because I didn't know any of this reaction until long after the fact. So like, oh, I wonder if he's interested at all. Right. <laughs> it's like the newlywed game. Like, like, it, it, like yeah, it is. About, like, did he like you? Did he like? It? Well, because yeah, the other the other yeah. thing, and I think this kind of gets two points, right? The other thing was you had just that's where you were in Palo Alto. You were keynoting a robotics conference, and so he sits down at the table, and it was like I think it was actually a really genuine question, but he starts pulling out business cards for partners of like all the top tier Sandhill Road venture firms. He's like, this person came up to me afterward, this person came up to me. And I was like, no, 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 like, no, no, no. Let, let's just, uh -oh. <laughs> and so I, I'm pretty sure I walked out of that coffee and I called my partners and I was like, we have to do this like right now. Um, right. That was kind of the, the dynamic there. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think that at a high level, right? Because um, there's a lot of really bright people in the world that are doing interesting things. But I think the timeliness piece was big. And it was really, you know, Jack Fuchs, one of my partners, he's one that teaches entrepreneurship at Stanford and has for a long time. And he has this kind of framework that he talks about in his entrepreneurship courses. And it's, you know, if you're looking at pursuing an entrepreneurial endeavor or investing in an entrepreneurial endeavor, it's like, are they solving a significant pain point, an enduring industry in a defensible way at the right time with the right team and a scalable business model? It's like, when I sat down with Daniel, and certainly, and this was even reinforced as we dug into the business, dug into the team, dug into the, you know, market, it's like it just checked all those boxes, right? And so it's, I mean, it is fairly rare, I think, um, even when you're talking to people with kind of Daniel's pedigree, for the team broadly, the opportunity broadly, the company broadly to kind of just really satisfy all those criteria. And, you know, we invest in the ones that satisfy all those criteria. And Vecna is a great example of that. Let's uh, talk about Vecna Robotics today. So, Daniel, where, like, like, 
like, what, what do you guys do? Like what's the, the bread and butter of the company? Yeah, so the easiest way to explain it is autonomous forklifts. Um, that is the, the sort of layperson's um, thing that we solve today better than anyone else in the world. Um, and that is a stepping stone towards the big picture, which is really about work, workflow. How do we move things more efficiently than ever before? Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, that's not just about the robots. That's really about coordinating robots, manually operated equipment, human workers uh, in the most efficient way possible. Um, but, uh, you know, um, today, if you need to move uh, pallets in a warehouse from point A to point B, there's no better solution out there than uh, Vecna Robotics. Uh, it, one of the really nice things is it's one of those easy sort of win-win-wins because the robots, um, uh, you know, they pay for themselves very quickly. Um, uh, they're better for the environment. They do it more safely. Um, but uh, they also allow the human workers to um, be much more productive. You kind of mentioned it earlier. Um, you know, human workers don't really, this is probably going to be a big surprise for people, but they don't really enjoy driving across a million square foot facility, you know, 10 times a day, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, they're much more happy and engaged when they're actually doing tasks that require, um, uh, you know, some, some more, um, some more thought, um, you know, even in the warehouse, even if that's like stacking pallets or pulling pallets down from racks or, or, you know, dealing with exceptions or inspecting or whatever it is, these things that actually require human levels of cognition. Um, so, um, you know, it's this, it's this really exciting adoption curve that we're seeing. And, uh, you know, the, the, the driverless or the autonomous pallet handling equipment is, is sort of the first step and it's a very timely um, uh, need that um, I think, uh, again, doesn't suffer from a lot of the challenges that, for instance, on highway autonomy does, um, uh, you know, which is, again, in many ways, probably, probably a decade or more away at any, you know, significant scale um, uh, for broad adoption. Um, you know, we, we uh, are ready to deploy large numbers of robots in warehouses, which ultimately make work better and create more jobs uh, uh, and, and allow those companies to be more successful than ever before. So like when I think of, uh, you know, other successful companies and specifically the Boston, like Kiva Systems, right? When I see videos of their robots before they were acquired by Amazon and maybe people have seen videos of the Amazon fulfillment centers and the robots driving around, it's somewhat similar, right? As far as how forklifts would be around humans in the warehouse, but having their task and it's all, based on this you know, software platform that you've built too. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's, you know, we, we learned early on that um, robots are just as good at wasting time as human workers if they're not tasked effectively, um, you know, and, and I don't mean wasting time in, in sort of a, you know, easier negative way, but uh, there are just so many activities where we, we do things that aren't the most important thing for what needs to actually get done in the warehouse. Um, and people are not really good at figuring that out. You know, when you have a big warehouse, your rate of throughput it, in general is limited by one thing at a time. You know, it's a sort of a, a systems theory concept, but there's always one bottleneck that is the rate limiter right now. 
And, um, you know, as human beings, we're just not good at identifying that. And so you may send a bunch of people over to, to conveyor belt C because you see that there's a backup of conveyor belt C. And so you really want to get that cleared. But when you look at the system as a whole, it may be that clearing that backup on conveyor belt C has absolutely nothing to do with actually increasing the rate of material moving out of that warehouse right now. Um, so again, it's not about just throwing automation sort of in stovepipes at all these different pieces, but really understanding the system as a whole and being in a situation where you can apply the right resource at the right time um, and, and uh, um, you know, do that in a flexible way so that you can maximize throughput and, and have a resilience and a flexibility that just has not been possible to date um, without this type of technology. I know we did a, an office tour of your manufacturing facility in Waltham. So the, um, which, you know, for, for listeners, our office tours are basically still photography of us, uh, you know, taking pictures of inside offices or inside, you know, uh, you know, facilities where they're building things like robots. So what was the decision as far as actually, you know, building and, and manufacturing in Waltham? Yeah. Well, so we don't, uh, I think to be technically accurate, we don't manufacture in Waltham as much as we sort of do final assembly. Um, but but the, we're on the path and the goal is that ultimately these vehicles are built completely on our OEM partners assembly lines and shipped directly to the customers. And then we're basically providing the software that makes it all happen. You know, much like uh, you can go out and buy your, you know, your laptop from any number of uh, hardware manufacturers and providers these days, and it all run the same software. That didn't always, um, it didn't always work out that way, right? I mean, it used to be early on in the computer industry that, you know, the company that made your computer programmed your computer, um, you know, there was no compatibility across dis different computer lines. And that industry, you know, didn't really progress um, anything other than linearly until this point when we had this, somebody had this crazy idea that, hey, maybe a different company could write the software for this part of hardware. I mean, for this particular piece of hardware. And that was a, that was a heretical idea at the time, right? And, and we don't, most of us don't remember that or don't think about that, but you know, the idea that some other company could write software for an IBM computer, um, there was no way that was ever gonna happen in most people's minds, you know, cause IBM wanted to control quality and you know, all these very rational um, uh, arguments. But of course, we look at it today and you can't imagine it happening any other way. Um, and that's exactly where the robotics industry is going as well. And, you know, our, our goal is to be at the forefront of that. What's the size of the company today, like in number of employees and uh, what are your plans moving forward? Yeah, we're about uh, 120 employees right now um, uh, recruiting aggressively um, and uh, yeah, you know, our, our goal is to empower humanity with our technology and, uh, you know, make our customers more competitive and more flexible, more resilient than uh, any of their competitors and um, have a lot of fun while we do it. Makes sense. Well, the uh, the robotics industry is, uh, there's a lot going on. So, Trevor, like, what, what do you, like, what are the common pitch mistakes that entrepreneurs, when they're building robots, hardware, whatever the case may be, like, what are the common mistakes that you see entrepreneurs making, you know, when they're doing the initial pitch? That's interesting. And I think I'd actually probably point back to that framework I talked about earlier, right? These high level criteria. 
Are you solving a significant pain point? I think that's actually a big one. I mean, this is often talked about, right? But I think that a prerequisite for starting a company in my mind is an order of magnitude improvement and a key to the customer performance metric and or half the cost. And I think especially in the robotic space, we see a lot of incremental innovation and there are large incumbent players that are optimized for incremental innovation. I don't think startups can beat them at that game 99% of the time. So one of the issues I often see is just that they don't, they're not pursuing an order of magnitude improvement in something that matters to the customer. Um, the other ones, you know, that I talked about, um, right time, right team, those things, there can be failure modes associated with that. But I think the most common one is just not thinking big enough, really, if you will. Daniel, you're also a co-founder of Mass Robotics, which is a great organization that's supporting the robotics ecosystem in, in well, New England or Massachusetts. The uh, so So why is that area so just robust in the robotics industry? I mean, I've highlighted a couple of companies throughout our, our conversation, but like, why is it such a, just like a hotbed of things happening right now? Yeah, you know, I think that um, the New England area uh, had some real advantages there because it had sort of this deep manufacturing um, legacy, um, had had a significant software legacy um, in terms of, you know, Sun and a number of the, uh, um, uh, all the early innovations in, in uh, operating systems and that type of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, the, um, the robotics um, Field is a combination of all of these things. I mean, you know, and so you've got Silicon Valley that's, you know, sort of all software all the time, which is great. Um, and, you know, another contender I'd say is Pittsburgh, which tends to be heavier on the hardware robotics side of things. But I think Boston was this area where you really had this, you know, the, the right ingredients to create a, a vibrant robotics ecosystem. Um, the hardware, the software, uh, you know, sort of the, the um, business expertise, et cetera. Um, but, you know, the reason we, we founded Mass Robotics and um, there were um, a number of people out there, the industry that we sort of partnered together to do this, but it all kind of started out of Vecna's um, community service program. So, you know, we've done this very unique thing where from day one, we would pay our employees to spend 10% of their work week doing community service. Mm -hmm. And myself and a, a number of my colleagues here just felt like the industry really needed uh, an organization to help move some of these things forward, right? I, we weren't having the right level of pre-competitive collaboration in the robotics industry. That's so crucial for an industry to actually mature and grow and ease adoption for, you know, at large scale for big customers. So um, we, uh, we put our heads together, we brought it, we, we partnered with other people um, and uh, founded Mass Robotics. And it really has this mission of just helping the robotics industry to grow by connecting innovators and customers and investors um, in, in ways that just wasn't happening effectively before. You know, you'd have a lot of innovators coming out of school, you know, kind of to Trevor's point, really excited about robotics, but not really solving the right problems. Um, and, uh, you know, so, uh, and, and the other big thing that Mass Robotics focuses on is uh, helping to um, encourage the next generation of great STEM talent. Um, you know, as a, uh, at least here in the US, um, we are 
you know, I think there's significant fears. Um, I, I certainly have this fear that we're falling way, way behind in terms of, uh, you know, producing the next generation of engineers and entrepreneurs that uh, are going to, um, you know, make a big difference. And, uh, um, you know, it's kind of a lost opportunity. Yeah, now Mass, Mass Robotics is a great, great organization. We've been uh, supporting them as far as, you know, promoting their programs and various other initiatives that they've had since the uh, the beginning. So thank you for that. We appreciate yeah. it. Well, kudos for you know starting something like that. It's very meaningful. All right. So Trevor, what's um, any podcasts or book recommendations that you have for entrepreneurs? You know, I, I made a reference to one, a subtle reference to one earlier, which is um, what is the messy middle, right? I use the, that language to describe, um, part of my dad's entrepreneurial journey. Right. But I think that is a fantastic book. I, I think that there is, there's so much attention um, put on kind of the, the sexy startup phase. And certainly we pay a lot of attention to the exits, but everything that happens in between, I think that's one of the best books. Um, I found myself recommending that one a lot lately. Is it messy? <laughs> it's messy. Is, is that what happens? It's, it's messy. It's not just the linear hard. hockey stick growth path, and it's just all <laughs> rainbows and butterflies. No. No. If you if if you looked at my uh, Daniel and my phone logs, right, all the late night phone calls over the last couple of years, you'd get probably start to get a feel for it, and that's true for every yeah. company. <laughs> Yep. 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 Yeah. And I was just, I was just going to sort of add to that, that there are a lot of great books out there. There's a lot of great um, podcasts and that type of thing. Um, but there's also, there's also a trap there because I've seen a lot of people who will just listen to this stuff or read, read this stuff and then sort of apply it blindly, you know, sort of like just try and pattern match and like, okay, you're supposed to do this. Right. And again, you know, to Trevor's point, the world is messy and you can't do that. It doesn't work. You have to use your brain. Um, you really have to take ownership for, you know, take all that great advice, read all those great case studies, understand everything as well as you can. But then you need to have the confidence um, and, and, um, and courage to make the right decisions at this point in time for this particular market, for this particular team, et cetera. Um, I think the number one mistake I've seen for entrepreneurs is, you know, they just try and, you know, they just try and run it like a computer program. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't work. And I've hired a number of people who, you know, I, I used to joke that um, I didn't, I, I didn't like hiring people out of business school because they were broken at that point. Um, you know, they just, <laughs> They, they would they would just you know um, sort of turn off their brain and say oh well there was a case study and you know mm -hmm. um, you know Harley Davidson did their manufacturing this way and therefore we should too like no that's not Harley Davidson is a great company but it's a very different that, that's thing. I think that's such an important point right and I actually since we've sort of blended in our history and academic background things like that I remember when I was getting ready to defend my thesis one of my committee members you know day before she said. She's like, don't worry about it. There's nobody in the world who knows more about this very narrowly defined subject than you do. And I think Daniel's point is absolutely right. Like you've got years of thinking about this and working on this company in the trenches. And yes, those frameworks and whatnot are, are very useful. And you should take an advice, take all this in to your point, Daniel. But then there's nobody in the world who knows what you're trying to accomplish 
more than you do, right? And so at the end of the day, you have to use your brain and decide what you think is best and pursue that. And that is probably the most informed perspective on that decision that you could possibly hope for. Yeah, it's hard though, right? Because you get a lot of pressures, you get a lot of very strong opinions from from other people. Um, and you know that was something that uh, that took me a while to learn. Um, you know, I I tended to defer to somebody who spoke loudly or with confidence about something, and oftentimes found myself um, wishing that I hadn't in retrospect. Um, so you know, trust your gut. Um, you know, investors are investing in you. Um, they're not investing in you know a Harvard case study. They're investing in you, and so you need to really, um, you know, again be bold have courage and, uh, you know, take some risks, but, uh, uh, you've, you, you've got to, uh, you know, do your own analysis of the situation and, and chart your own path. That's great, great feedback for other entrepreneurs to follow. So on that note, I want to thank you, Daniel, for sharing all the stories of, you know, building Vecna robotics and obviously, you know, Vecna as a whole and, you know, Trevor, thanks for you know taking the time to share, you know, the background story of how the, the things you've done and obviously the, uh, you know, the great work that your firm is doing and obviously giving some commentary of how, you, what led you down the path of, of funding the company. That has been great. Thanks so much for the time, Keith. Yeah, a really wonderful conversation. And uh, I just want to say that uh, working with Blackhorn has been amazing. Um, and uh, it, it's rare that I think you find a firm that uh, checks all the boxes as well. And uh, so uh, we're, we're really grateful to Blackhorn for everything they brought to the table. Certainly it's been far more than just a check. Oh, thanks, Daniel. Appreciate that. Perfect match. It has been a good <laughs> partnership. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.